<laughs> hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Alex and Mo podcast. And tonight, I guess I have to address him as Colonel Dr. Jason Silvernail. So I am going to let him lead tonight. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. I, I am uh, Colonel Jason Silvernail. Um, and look, so in addition to being a doctor of physical therapy, and um, trying to be as active as I can in the physical therapy community in the United States. I'm also a commission officer in the US Army. So I have to tell you everything that we talk about today and then I talk about with you is my personal opinion and commentary. And it's not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Army, the Department of Defense or the United States government. But, but <laughs> it is my opinion and these are my opinions. And I think my opinions have at least some value. Uh, I've got you know over 30 years in the military. Um, you know, I'm a, a, a colonel in the United States Army. I'm the Surgeon General's consultant for physical therapy. So I'm the senior most physical therapy policy expert we have in the U.S. Army. Uh, and I have done and had a lot of experience leading people in different environments, in hospitals, uh, in clinics, uh, in the United States, uh, in Europe, and even in combat zones and in Afghanistan. So I'm hopeful to be able to bring some of that to you and and you know, uh, answer your questions or talk about some cool stuff. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Uh, we appreciate you being here for taking the time just to sit yeah. here with Alex and I. So we appreciate it. But um, we were just talking about something because almost every time I show up at a patient's house, Alex and I both do home health. And mm. we start going through the exercises. They're like, were you ever in the military? And I'm often like, no. Then they asked, were you ever in law enforcement? And I'm like, no. And they were like, yeah, you could fool me. And I was like, why do people have this perception that people who are like focused and want you to do stuff have been in the military? So what in the military's culture gives everyone the perception in the civilian world that you guys are strict and rigid? Yeah, well, um, well I think it's a good question. For the starters, I, I'm not sure people I don't know that people think we're strict and rigid. I like I like that maybe some people do, but I, but I would say I think that the, the funny thing about the military it's like every other topic you've ever heard of. Have you ever noticed something that the people mm -hmm. with the strongest opinions about things are usually the people who know the least about them? Did you ever notice that? Right? <laughs> Did you ever notice that the people with the strongest opinions about things usually know the least about them? Right? Like that's a uh -huh. problem. Right? So and I'm like I'm not even that at you or anybody in particular. I'm just speaking that as a general statement, right? Have you ever gone to a family dinner, say, like it's you know it's Thanksgiving or it's Christmas or whatever, and some 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 relatives like Uncle Bobby's in the corner, right? And Uncle Bobby is just like talking all sorts of stuff about some medical topic, and you're thinking to yourself, he has no idea what he's talking about, right? But he but Uncle Bobby like he knows it, right? He's going to tell you he he saw this thing on the internet. He, you know, he saw a programmer, so he's super convinced, right? And so I think a lot of people are, are like that. I, I would say that um, if in the military we have the reputation for being uh, goal-directed uh, and efficient and particular about things, I think that's probably fair. And I think it's actually a, I think that's actually a, a good thing. Um, as the stakes in a situation that you're in go up, your attention to detail has to also go up. And things that don't matter so much 
doesn't really matter how you do them, right? But situations of urgency and consequence, we got to be in our P's and Q's. We have to know exactly what to do and do things a certain way or people will get hurt. And, and, a, and a lot of the things we do in the military are like that, right? So I think it, it has a way of sort of um, forcing you to develop good habits of thought. It forces you to develop um, a dedication to learning how to make good decisions very, very early when you're very young. And we have like 22-year-olds vested with an impressive amount of responsibility and authority, and we expect them to deliver results. And when you have done that for decades, and you've spent the entire time in the organization learning how to do that, it changes you. It changes the way you think about things. And like I tell people often, it changes your brain. Being in positions of accountable leadership for long periods of time changes your brain in the way you see things and the way you think about things and the way you make decisions. And some of those changes, I would say most of them, are good and they'll help you make better decisions. And maybe we could talk a little bit about what anyone who's listening can do to sort of move in that same direction, whether you're in the military or not. Well, go right ahead. What can you do to move in that direction? I'm so glad you asked, and I just had no idea. You asked it. It's just so spontaneous. You're great at it. Just um, teed it up for you. And, yeah. Alex, you're killing me. So, like, well, for starters, let's 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 talk about um, let's talk about what I've heard other people talk. I've heard other people in the leadership and communication space talk about managing your ABCs: your appearance, your behavior, and your communication skills. Right now in the military, we're particular about your appearance and I'm not talking about like how attractive you are. Like I have the face I have. I have the nose I have. Like, I, like, like no one's going to confuse me with a men's health model. But at the same time, I can be organized and neat in my appearance. And I can conduct my way myself in a way that shows competence and encourages confidence of others and i can develop communication skills that make me effective with other people and effective as a leader and that's abc appearance behavior and communication skills right so all of us can do this so i i remember going to college years ago when dinosaurs were on the earth and it was before the internet it was when there were card catalogs it was a long time ago right and I went to this little Catholic Jesuit school in Northeast Pennsylvania called the University of Scranton, go Royals. And there was a guy on campus and I don't, he wasn't in my program. I don't even think he took the same classes I took. He was just sort of an average looking guy, right? But this guy dressed nice. I mean, he had the wingtip shoes. He had a suit and a tie every day, even in the summer when it was hot and it does get hot in Pennsylvania in the summer. And he would sort of take his jacket off and throw it over his shoulder. And everywhere that guy went, there were always people around talking to him, right? There were always people around talking to him. And, you know, as a young man, I'm like, he's always talking to girls too. And part of it was his appearance, right? And he didn't, he was not a men's health cover model, right? But he dressed for the job he wanted. He managed his appearance, right? And I think all of us can start by doing right? So that's the first part is appearance. The second is behavior. What are your behaviors like, right? And I think when I think about leadership, 
I think about behaviors, not ideas. I think one of the things that I'd like people to take away the most is that leadership is about behaviors. It is not about ideas. There is no shortage of people who want to talk to you about ideas, who want to tell you about the latest leadership book they wrote or talk about some cool program. And it's mostly just talk. Show hmm. me behavior. Show me the behaviors, right? And I think your behaviors, when you interact with others, start with your mindset. Ideas can be important for your mindset, but they're not enough. And I think the first part of your mindset is you need to develop an other-directed perspective, not a self-directed perspective. When I walk into a room, I'm thinking about what do the people in that room need from me? What do they need from me? And how can I deliver it for them? What do they need from me and how can I deliver it for them? Especially customers. Now, you might think that that's a weird thing for me to say, customers, because I'm in the military. And we don't exchange money with each other, right? And we don't market to each other. I mean, it's I mean, it's socialized medicine, right? Like, why would I be talking about customers? I think about customers from the perspective of people I'm responsible to delivering results for. And the funny thing about customers, it's usually not my boss. My boss is not my customer. I'm thinking about the people around me. I'm thinking about my peers and my juniors, who I'm responsible for delivering results for. What do they want from me? And am I delivering it for them? And one of the best ways to find that out, wherever you are, wherever you're doing, is to ask them. Is to ask them. So I think we're very good at going to the boss and say, hey, boss, how am I doing? I would like to challenge you and say, maybe instead of asking your boss, you ought to ask your customers. Right. So I, when I worked at a big hospital, I was the chief of physical therapy at the hospital. So who do you think my most important customers are in a hospital department of physical therapy? Who do you think my most important customers are? Let's work through it. Right. Well, most of my referrals come in from primary care. So the chief of primary care, the family physician who ran primary care, customer number one. If she wasn't happy, I was failing. She didn't tell me that. I knew that myself, right? Customer number two, where about 20% of my referrals came from, the chief of orthopedics. So I want to make sure he's happy, right? And so that's one way to look at who your customers are. And I'm trying to think about, am I delivering the right performance for them? I, have you asked them, hey, what do you see for me that you like? What do you see for me that maybe isn't as effective? Would you like to see me do some things that I'm not doing? right? How's my communication with you? Do you hear enough from me? Do you hear too much from me? Is there something I can do to better meet your needs? And most times, the first time you ask people that question, they will give you this look. Like they have no idea what you're talking about. They're like, why are you asking me these questions? Right? But I feel like that's important. So I feel like the first part of managing the behavior part of leadership is being other directed instead of self directed. And asking yourself, what do other people need from me? How can I deliver that? Hmm. Great tips. Now, so, go ahead, Alex. Uh, so, going along with how you said, you know, reaching out to your your customer and and in, use the example of, you know, two referral sources for when you were in, in the hospital setting. Yeah. Do you feel that, as an example, for an outpatient therapist, whether it be a staff therapist, 
you know, clinic director, owner, whatever the case may be. Should we be going to their referral source? Should we be asking those questions to those doctors or should we be directing that more towards the consumer that our, 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 our client there? Um, because there has been kind of that movement, um, at least in my opinion, uh, to kind of get away from the referral source or having to, to cater towards doctors or whatever the case may be and, and focusing more on the end user uh, of our services. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, those are the first two examples that I came up with in that scenario because I think they're the examples most people are familiar with. Um, but I would tell you, I spent a lot of time working on direct-to-consumer communication also and asking those same questions, asking them what would they like to see from us, how can we reach them better, how can we get our name and what we can do out in front of consumers more often. Because I agree that um, I, I can't survive by sitting back and just talking to existing customers. I have to build new ones too. And I get probably the bulk of my referrals in the military context especially, are from PAs and nurse practitioners. They're not even from physicians. So just because of the, of the people who work in primary care, right? So I want to I figure out who all those people are, and I want to figure out how to serve their needs better, whether that's like somebody who sends referrals or whether that's a customer. You know, I would say that a satisfied patient probably sends you more referrals than any healthcare, any other licensed healthcare practitioner. And you would be far better off in most cases, especially like in a in a um, in an independent or private practice type scenario. Probably far better off really providing great care to one patient, and they probably will send you more referrals than you know making the podiatrist down the street as, as happy as she can be. Although you should do that too, right? Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> so from what you described with the ABCs and stuff and with the military making sure you assume responsibility early. I am, I'm hearing that your environment plays a very key ingredient in molding you into, into leadership. And we all went through PT school. I don't think we were taught anything about leadership. If we did yeah. any business courses at all, it was very little. So you might be very talented and have a skill, be driven, have a business mindset, but many of us don't know how to effectively lead because we lack in some areas, the communication area, we may be fit, have the appearance, have a nice clinic. If you can't communicate effectively with your customers, for me, it might be my contractors, and also the vendors that I serve, then things could be rocky. So how, if we didn't have that environment, what courses or things can we attend that would help us to improve on that? Yeah, so um, how controversial am I allowed to be? Very. So zero to five. You already did the disclaimer. What's your tolerance for controversy? Be honest. Hey, this, this is um, this is an yes, open yes, forum. To Alex and I. Yeah, this, this is an open forum. I mean, all right, all right. Okay. So we listen, we don't filter for the sake of people are going to feel a certain kind of way about what I'm about to say. 
And you know and what? Look, it is what it is. <laughs> what I'd ask you to do is stick with me, and I'll get there. Okay. We got you. Go ahead. Healthcare professions are not careers; they're jobs. Healthcare professions are not careers; they're jobs. So, a career you enter, and you have a vertical path. You have a vertical path that starts from entry level and it moves up to executive leadership positions. That's what a career looks like. A job is something you learn how to do, and that's the thing you do the whole time. And there might be one or two positions above that, but there's no vertical, right? Mm -hmm. So most healthcare professions, actually almost all of them, are not careers, they're jobs. And I think many of us, having trained in a healthcare profession, Imagine that we have this thing called a career when really we just learn to do a specific job in healthcare, and we express frustration that there's no vertical for us or that we have a hard time moving through the vertical when that was never the intention. The intention of going to nursing school or medical school or physical therapy school is to learn how to do a specific job in healthcare. Now, are there people at that place where you do that job that manage the place that are clinical? Of course there are. There's one or two, right? And above them, there's maybe one or two. That's it, right? That's not a career. That's a job. And part of what makes this painful is people think that jobs are less important than careers, and they're not. They're not. The advantage of a healthcare job is that when you learn that profession and you come out, you're making much more money than most people who have jobs rather than careers. And people get frustrated that they don't move up. And that is a mismatch between reality and expectation. So the part of what I do that's a career is the part that's a military officer. The part that I do that's a doctor of physical therapy or a physician, or a podiatrist, or an optometrist, or a dentist. It's mostly a job. Now, there are examples and places where you can take that training to do that job and move it into a career. And what, is, so what does that look like? So private practice and owning your own business is a great example of taking a job and moving it into a career. But the purpose of physical therapy education, or nursing school, or medical school, is not to teach you how to lead other people. That's not the purpose. It's to teach you how to do the job. It's to teach you how to provide safe, quality care in your healthcare job. And I know some people are gonna hear this and they're gonna do the little thing where they take that little snippet of what I have to say and they're gonna put it up and they're gonna, get, they're gonna breathe heavily and they're gonna talk about how terrible I am. Bring it on, bring it on. I said what I said, right? Because I think this is a key part of what makes some people dissatisfied with healthcare, is they go into it thinking it's a career, they find out it's a job, and then they say, I gotta go somewhere different now. And maybe the best thing is for them to learn how to be more effective leaders, deliver better results, and become a healthcare leader. Now a healthcare leader, that's got a vertical. Now we're asking the interesting questions, right? How much do you think that 
um, the the job versus career factors into what is being experienced now with with burnout? Yeah, um, I think it's hard to say. I, I think so. Um, burnout is tricky because it's hard to know what that it's hard to know what that means. So let me let me try to give you a little bit of context, like. So like all of you who share the same profession as me, including both of you, we're really smart people. We always have been. And we're pretty driven and type A kind of organized, right? And so when I was a kid, I wanted to, a career and profession ended up helping people, thought I wanted to be a doctor because there was only one kind of doctor in my view back then. And so I started following around my parents' friends who were physicians and I was absolutely crushed because I didn't like their job. I didn't like what they did. And I had built myself up that that was my only option this whole time. I followed an ortho guy and a dermatologist and a family person. So I tried to get it over. I even followed a dentist or I really didn't like that, right? And you know, I, got, I got nothing but love for you, Dennis, nothing but love for you. Um, but that was what I thought was the only option for me, right? Until, like many people, I got injured and then saw a PT and was like, holy crap, this is what I'm looking for. These are the people who, man, that's awesome. How can I do that? Right? And I think that we come up that way with an expectation. When I was a kid, and so I, I go and I apply to PT school, and I'm like, oh, okay, what is life like as a PT? There was no internet. There, um, there was no you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics, right? And so I went to the library, flipped through the card catalog, little thing to help me find the right book, pulled out career books that they published every year and looked up how much PTs made and where they worked and the kind of jobs that they had. So way back before the internet, I knew exactly what I was getting into. And so if there are folks now in our profession or any other in medicine who come out go through the program, get into their clinical life, and then all of a sudden go, wait, this wasn't what I thought it was. Like, I'm gonna need you to explain that to me. I'm gonna need you to explain that to me. Because with three clicks of the computer that you have in your pocket, you could find out almost all of the information that I had to work a lot harder to get to when I was, so the, so the fact that we are the poor kind of doctor and not the rich kind of doctor, right? Or the fact that the, we have to work the kind of jobs that we end up working in PT and that we, in the, the situations that we work in, like none of that was a surprise to me. My expectation and my reality, boom, right on. So I was super happy. I think a lot of people, their expectation is here and their reality is there. And it's that difference that causes the problem. It's that difference. The same thing with your customers. When you can align the expectations and the reality, you're in a good place. When they have an expectation that you haven't met, then you're going to have a problem. I mean, you're you're. When it comes to burnout, I mean, I think I, I think of things like finances too. Like, what's the like what's the median wage for a primary breadwinner? Mean a median wage in the, in the United States right now. This is 2023. We're having this conversation. It's about fifty-two thousand a year. What's okay. the What's the what's the entry level salary for for your average PT on average coming out of school? You guys probably know this better than me. Sixty five, seventy. 
Well, so the Bureau of Labor Statistics will tell you it's about 95. But also, if you know anything about the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they overestimate a little bit, right? So let's say it's 70, say. Now, where does that put somebody in, in the percentage, right? That means you're coming out of school as a brand new graduate. At right around the 70% earner, you're in a top 30% of people who earn money in our country. And this is a problem how? This is unfair how, right? Now, what the, I think what they would say is, look, we've got a lot more debt than you have, and they're right. And if they're mad about debt, I think they should be. I think they should be mad. And if you've got a lot of debt and you're angry about it, you're right to be mad about it. You should get angrier about it because that's what it's going to take to get us to sort it out, right? But at the same time, it's important to realize that's where we sit too. And I think burnout reflects reflects a disconnect between expectation and reality. And I think sometimes for us, if our reality doesn't change, maybe we need to change that expectation a little bit and realize, hey, look, if I don't feel like this is for me, let's, let me get some more experience and learn more about it and then figure out what I'm going to do next. Because if this, if this isn't for me, I need to move on. I think that... Um, we need to help people understand that there's more than one way to be a clinician in PT. There's more than one way to do the job that we do. And just because you're not happy in your current role, in your current position, doesn't mean that all clinical care is wrong for you. Okay, that was kind uh, of Most fun. definitely. But do you think that the expectations can be blurred when some people are telling them, hey, as a, a new grad DPT, you should be demanding six figures. But in reality, a lot of clinic owners can't afford to pay someone six figures as a new grad. Um, yeah. And Jerry so might give me for this because I, I use the word yeah. can't afford because he would say you can find ways in which to compensate someone. But it's very difficult with the current um, payment rates that we get yeah. to offer what some people are expecting to get when they graduate. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's a fair question. So if somebody makes six figures or more, what percentage of income earners are they in? Uh, the top, top, yeah, top, top 10%. They're a top 10% yeah. if you're over six figures, right? So let me make sure I understand what someone's expectation is. Mm -hmm. Their expectation is they graduate from from college and get a bachelor's. They get a clinical doctorate and then they come out of school with no experience and they're instantly made a top 10% earner. Is that is that what their expectation is? So yes, I because they have the title. They have the title. I found that most of the time people who have this disconnect, remember one of the things I said at the beginning, the people have the strongest opinions about things usually know the least about it. One of the things that I found that helps is to ask someone to walk me through what they think and why they think it. And it's important to do this in a way that is kind and that is not, you know, snarky or difficult or um, sarcastic. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, so help me understand. So like, so you have this amount of experience and what, so what, how much do you think you should be? So why do you think you should be paid that? Where, where, where have you gone to find reliable information on what to expect for salary? 
So sometimes I have these conversations about politics with people in my family because I'm crazy, but um, there's no one should do that. <laughs> but I sometimes I said, well, that's interesting. So where, where have you gone to find reliable and unbiased information about that topic? Now, what do you think the answer is? You say, well, well, I heard it on the favorite program of the people who all talk the way that I believe. Like, okay, well, where else have you looked for reliable information on that? Well, oh, nowhere. Oh, okay, well, would you like to talk about where we might do that and come to an understanding about what the reality is about that situation? Let's talk about it, right? And I think that that's a big piece of it. I think um, this is related to some of the generational challenges we're having with younger people and older people in the workplace. And one of the things I found is that people in my generation, so I'm Gen X, so I think a lot of people in my generation talk about younger generations only through the lens of what's different and negative about them, and never through the lens about what's different and positive about them and what's better in them than what was when we were that age, right? And I think that our younger people, in our, our millennials and Gen Z or iGen or whatever you want to call them, they're demanding transparency and they're demanding a kind of explanation and transparency that we never thought to demand when we were in their shoes. Now we have a choice about how we want to see that. We can see that as, Oh, they're entitled little brats, or we can think, you know, they owed me transparency when I was 25 too. Why didn't I think to ask for it? Didn't I deserve the honest truth? I'm going to be different. You know, they're going to ask for an explanation why. Darn it, I'm going to give it to them and walk them through that process. So, like, how much do you think? So, we're in a physical therapy practice, right? I've got four docs, three techs, an administrator, a front desk person, say. How much can I, how much do I pull in uh, a year as the clinic owner? How much do I pull in? How much do you think I can expect to pull in with that many staffs? Because the reason I'm asking is that if you don't know the answer to that, you're missing some key information that is going to help you make a decision about whether your salary ask is appropriate. Right. And so you can sort of walk people through that process. Right. And you can also ask them where they've gone to find reliable information about their expectation. And especially with, with the, the answers to almost everything, who clicks away? Heck, you don't even have to click. There's so much, so many things are voice activated now. You can just ask your digital assistant, you know, hey, Bobby, what's the uh, what's the average starting salary for a doctor of physical therapy in the United States in 2023? You're going to find some answers to that. But you ain't going to find six figures. So backing up a little bit uh, earlier, you, you know, you were talking about expectation and reality. Was your expectation um, to be a physical therapist in the military? Yeah. Yeah, I always wanted to be a soldier since when I was a kid. I joined the Army at 17. I've been a soldier my entire life. I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> I have no idea how to do anything else. No. Like, I'm going to have to retire in the next couple of years. And I got to be honest, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I, I don't know how to be a normal person. Apparently, you have to wear clothes that are not the same the whole time. I don't know. It's weird, right? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I have this on my porch. I have no idea what I'm doing. 
What was the, the motivation for that, though? Did you have were members of your family in the military? You know, yes. what was my, my grandfather served in World War II. He was a military policeman in Europe. My dad was in the Navy during the Vietnam War. Uh, and I mean, I think independently from that, you know, you just always want to be certain things. Like what I first thing I want to do when I was a kid is when I, I, I wanted to be a garbage man when I grew up because they could ride in the back of the trucks, right? Have to admit, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> then, then I wanted to be Spider Man. Turns out, not a viable career path. And don't ask me, but I checked. <laughs> and so, after after Garbage Man and Spider Man, I wanted to be a soldier. And I just have always wanted to do that. I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be a soldier. And one of the things we say in the in the army sometimes it's kind of a joke thing. People ask you, "Hey, how you doing?" You'll say, oh, "I'm living the dream." It's sort of like a joke, sarcastic thing to say, like you're doing something like repetitious and horrible and like soul crushing or whatever, but you're going to say something positive about it. But you know what? I actually am. This is I'm actually doing exactly what I always wanted to do. And I got to tell you guys, it feels pretty great, and I want that for everyone. And I want everyone to get the outcome that they would most like, whether that's in clinical care or in a leadership or in, in whatever it is. I want to help them get there because a big part of my job as a leader is helping people solve their problems. I want to help them solve their problems and I want to help and get them what they really want. I just read in one of the books that I'm reading, leadership books, that the more problems you solve, the more you get in return, the bigger your profits are. I also read too yep. that if you have one less thing to think about in the morning, you said you wear the same clothes every day. Yeah. So Steve Jobs and even um, Mark Perfect Zuckerberg example. and other leaders, they yeah. wear the same thing. Yeah. Well, not the same clothes, but the same type of stuff. So it reduces yeah. the burden of having to pick out something yeah. to wear. And I thought about it and I'm like, I always wondered why they had us wear school uniforms when we were in like primary school and secondary school, although I hated it, but that consistency made sure you didn't have to worry about. There's, there's something to that. I like, I'll get home. Like I, like I have a senior executive lead. I have essentially two senior executive jobs at the same time right now in the army. And, uh, if you're a taxpayer, I promise you I'm worth what you're paying me. Uh, because we work hard at this level. We work very hard and very long at this level in the Army. And um, at the end of the day, I'm exhausted cognitively. Like, I don't have any more cognitive resources for anything. Like, I'll come home and my wife will ask me what I want for dinner. Like, I really don't know. I can't, I, I don't have any resources left for that, you know? And I can imagine at like, some future day when I get out of the army and have to be a real person again, um, like I can imagine myself doing something like Steve Jobs did where I buy a whole bunch of the same kind of clothes. So I don't have to think about that, right? That, that makes a ton of sense to me. So uh, going along with the the solving problems, right? Like yeah. you, you've tweeted uh, a couple of different times about if you solve problems, that's how you, you, you get more rewards, you get opportunities yeah. Yeah. To, to impact at a bigger level. Right. What do you say to the individual? I'll, I'll use as an example, a, a staff therapist 
who sees a problem or a potential problem has a solution, but gets some sort of resistance from that one or two people that you mentioned above uh, yeah, yeah. as to whether it's even a problem or if it is a problem, if the solution that they're suggesting is viable or whatever the case may be. How do you overcome those types of uh, obstacles? Does that make sense? It does. Um, you don't get in where you don't fit in. You don't get in where you don't fit in. But what if you get in and then and you realize so after what, you get in that you, you don't fit in? What I mean by that is that um, you can't force your way to a table. You have to be invited. And if you're trying to solve a problem that is beyond your capability to solve and that you need other people to do additional things to solve them and other people say, no, we don't want to do that, you're trying to solve a problem at the wrong level. So if you're out there somewhere junior and you're like, I want to learn, you're thinking to yourself, I want to learn how to be a leader. I want to learn how to move up in this organization or any other. One of the best things you could possibly do is learn and start solving people's problems at your level, at your level, right? So you're a staff DPT. What kind of problems could you solve? Can you make, can you make appointments easier for your patients to make? You sure can. Can you cover your colleague shifts when they need it? Yep. Can you take on that extra patient from a colleague or your boss when they need you to? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Can you work with the front desk staff to sort out some sort of administrative problem or cover a mistake somebody else has made with the authority and responsibility you have at your level? Yes, you can. And when you do that enough times, you will develop not only expertise, but you'll develop reputation and influence. And that's how you get a seat at that table. So I think I think a lot of folks want to start by saying, hey, I've got these big ideas. And that's okay. But the people who get invited to the table to make those decisions are people who have a track record of solving problems and who have demonstrated knowledge, expertise, and perspective about the issue. And we're kind of circling back to that, the strongest opinions for the people who are least informed, right? And so if you are a new to a, to a business or an industry, or you're relatively junior in the organization, your goal should be trying to solve problems at your level and learning as much as you possibly can about exactly how your business works. And the more you understand about how it works, even things you don't directly touch, the broader your perspective becomes. And when you have a broad perspective and expertise in your content area, then you can start making good decisions and solving problems beyond the ones that are right in front of you. That's how you get invited to the table. So one of the things I would do, I, so I had a, a sort of a network of PT clinics at this big hospital I was at. And I went, I was talking to somebody, I, was, I went there to one of the clinics and they were doing like a safety walkthrough, like the hospital safety people were coming. They're like, you know, have you had any problems with, I said, yeah, well, one of the problems we have is that sometimes the cleaning staff will load the, um, will load the hand sanitizer into the soap dispenser. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, well, the hand sanitizer, they'll put it in the soap dispenser instead of putting the soap in the soap dispenser. They're like, you're the clinic chief. How do you know that? Well, the hand sanitizer looks gray and the soap looks blue. It's my business to know that. Clean hands are a big part of keeping patients safe. That's my job. 
Of course I know that, right? And people looked at me like I had four heads, right? Now, I'm not telling that to tell a hero story about me, but I'm, tell, I'm telling that story to let you know that understanding the details of how your business functions is very important because that creates perspective and that's how you can exert the kind of wisdom and problem solving you need to get invited up to a higher level. The people who are most frustrated with not being able to uh, have the influence they want are usually people who haven't solved enough problems at their level and don't have enough perspective and wisdom about the overall business to be effective at that table. And when it's time, they'll be invited. When you are really yeah. competent, when you are really competent, everyone will recognize it. So true. So from what I'm saying, a lot of us don't take the opportunity to self-reflect. And I honestly, I'm beginning to see that it's a huge part of having that growth mindset and becoming a better and more effective leader. Um, like I have my issues, yep. but at first I used to feel uncomfortable, like addressing them, especially publicly with even like staff members or family members. But the more comfortable I get feeling that it needs to be addressed, um, I'm realizing that relationships are getting better with the people who are around me. And instead of, um, asking people to like do things and basically not trusting them. Um, they're actually improving without me having to see anything. So self-reflection, something that a lot of us don't want to do, we yeah. have to do it. Yeah. And that comes with the self-awareness that you, you say, you yeah. have to be able to know, have a perspective of what's going on and suffer. Yeah. And uh, in my younger days, I probably got frustrated, like Alex said, not being able to solve problems because you want to, as he always puts it, at, at the kitty table, you want to get to the big table like quick because you think yeah, yeah, what's yeah, there is yeah. better than what what's you know yeah. what you have. But yeah, you have to eat what your stomach can manage. Yeah, and I think you you have to be you have to admit that there is a scope and range of your competence that is based on your previous experience and your demonstrated ability to deliver outcomes. And I think the people who are most frustrated that they can't move up quickly are usually people who are more junior in experience. And we just, you've got it. There's no shortcuts to that. There's no shortcuts to learning in detail how everything basically at your workplace functions. And I wish there were a shortcut to it, but, but there isn't. And that's, that's why one of the interesting things about the military is that there's a hierarchy to it. And I think there's an hierarchy everywhere you work. In the military, we just put it on our shirts. Everybody else has rank where they work too, but it's hidden. And only some people can see it. And that makes it less transparent and more complicated. We're in the Army, we wear it on our shirts. And there are steps that you have to go through and gates that you have to pass to go through that. It's an imperfect system, but it serves the purpose pretty well overall. It requires increasing levels of responsibility and ability to deliver outcomes for other people as a contingency of moving up the ROP. So since you said that millennials and uh, Gen Z, they like transparency, how among can, other things, yeah. among other things, but yes, transparency is a big thing. Cause I believe when I was hired at my first job, um, 
the practice manager didn't want me sharing what I was going to be paid with the other oh, yeah. staff therapists. You're talking about it now. They're talking about it now. People want to know. Um, yeah. And sometimes I get accused that I, I share too much information with the people that I want to hire, but I know yeah. they would appreciate the, the transparency. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah. if you see how much I'm getting, you understand why I'm paying you this. So yeah. um, how can we as private practice owners become more transparent without feel like we're giving away the recipe or the blueprint for for businesses yeah so um i will start by saying i don't have mm -hmm. a private practice okay I'm, I'm in the military and it's a socialized medicine system that in oh, a lot of ways is, and, in a, and in a lot of ways it's, it's more pre-market than the system that we work in on the outside uh and i can talk about that if you want to um, so I can't tell you the dollars and cents of what it's like to run a company and make a bottom line, but I can tell you that we have budget targets that we have to hit in military medicine too. And I know how to do, and I know how to manage a lot of that stuff as an executive. And I will tell you that this, if what you know and do can be boiled down to a piece of information or a slide, then your time's up already. Your time is up already. So information is cheap. Wisdom, experience, and leadership is priceless. And sharing information alone is often helpful. Like, so it's funny how people want to see things through their own positive lens. So I'll run into a lot of people who are my age who are Gen X people, all the kids these days. They just, they think they can get a shortcut to everything and they're so entitled and they always want to ask me why. And it's like, they're only seeing what the young, young people are asking through a negative lens. But what they could do, what they could do is see, start seeing themselves through a negative lens. You know, I grew up and I never had that transparency. I never thought I was allowed to ask about or talk about what I was being paid or what other people were being paid or who got what vacation rules or Actually, that wasn't a good that wasn't a good deal for me either. And the young people are pushing us in a positive direction if we'll only change our own mindset of how we look at it. And so I would say I'm often talking to people who I'm supposed to be serving, asking them what they need from me that I can help give them and help them be successful. I'm asking them these questions all the time. And once you start doing it, and once you start delivering for people, They'll start taking you up on it more, right? So it, in my organization in the Army, we do exit interviews of people who leave the service. And we say, hey, how, how was your time in the Army? What went well? What went poorly? And we ask a couple of interesting questions. And one of them is, did you have a specific negative experience with someone that we should know about? And so we get some people to tell us some interesting stories about stuff, people doing things that we wish they wouldn't. But we also asked, did you have a specific positive experience with someone that you want to recognize? And they give a name or two. You know, we aggregate these all through the year. And we put them up on the screen at, the, at our annual strategic planning conference. And we just had ours a couple of weeks ago. 
And there's a lot of names on that list of positive mentions. And they're all the people that like that you would expect in your organization that we know were helpful. Mentioned once. And there's some people who are mentioned twice. And there's an X2 after their name. Because they were mentioned twice. I had X8 after my name. Now, why am I telling you that story? Am I telling you that story to make myself seem great? I'm not. I'm telling you that story to let you know that I am intimately interested in how the subordinate people, the junior people in my organization, how they feel, what their experiences are of our organization, and how I can make it better as a senior executive leader. And I prioritize time with them, calling them, emailing them, talking them through issues. And so I have my finger on the pulse of the health of my organization in a way that a lot of other people don't. And it's because I put that time and effort in. And if you listen, they will tell you what they're interested in. They'll tell you what they're worried about. And they'll tell you what they want to know. And you should tell them, right? You should tell them. I, I have learned a tremendous amount from millennial and Gen Z people who are junior to me in my organization. They have made me a better leader and a better listener. And I think I, I wish more people in my generation and older would take that opportunity to listen because you will learn you will learn a lot of very useful things about what what is what is important to people what they care about and how you can make them successful and i think a big part of that is sharing more about why things happen why does so in in my line in the work in the army why do some people get to go to that place as an assignment and not this place why do some people get promoted and some people don't like i don't want to hide any of that I want to talk about all of it. <laughs> I want to talk about all of it, right? I, the last thing I want to do is hoard information. Information is cheap. Wisdom, leadership, that's priceless. Wisdom, leadership is priceless. And that might be your secret ingredient to success. So I, I'm glad you touched on the army being uh, socialized medicine because I even um, met with him today. Uh, there's a former, um, he was in the Navy, uh, because I usually go to near the Naval Academy to, to see him. And we've had some very interesting discussions, and one of them led me to post on Twitter, if the military can benefit from this socialized medicine, why can't the rest of the civilian world share in those benefits? And it got a lot of comments and a lot of people talking. I um, I but I didn't want it to go in, in the political direction of socialized medicine. Um, but the benefits he was talking about is that take the money away, the direct pay stuff. People mm -hmm. have the choice of, you know, seeing who they want. They get the care that yep. they need yep. and move on. But some people are saying, like, if a surgeon gets deployed... There's no continuity of care uh, that the spouses of these um, military uh, men and women don't necessarily have the same benefits and it can be expensive. So it's some of the, those are some of the things that uh, came up. But you being there for 30 plus years, um, what are the, since you said you talk about positives and, and negatives, 
What yeah. are some of the most positive things that you can take up from that socialized system and the military? Yeah, I don't think we should be afraid of talking about political things. I mean, I, I think when we talk about political things, we're, we're yeah. just talking about... We're, <laughs> we're just, well, I, think, I think it depends on how we frame it, right? I really do okay. think that it depends on how we frame it. And so I think that okay. if we frame it in terms of what are the trade-offs we're willing to make on a policy or rules, what are the rules that we're willing to make and what are the trade-offs that we're willing to experience by making those rules, that's what politics is. Instead of a rule at your company, it's a, it's a law in the books, right? And so um, I would say um, there's great quality of care and there's great access to care in military medicine. I'm a big fan of military medicine. I believe it. And I believe that in, in many cases, especially for our population, it produces equivalent or superior outcomes to care other places. One of the interesting things about the socialized medicine system that I work in is that it's more free market than the one that you work in. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. In the military health system, licensed independent providers, that's a joint commission term, LIP, right? People who are licensed and independent providers who make their own clinical decisions, um, physicians, podiatrists, optometrists, dentists, physical therapists, et cetera. Like they are given clinical privileges and access to patients that line up with their education and training. So what we have done in military medicine is we've grown the supply of people who can care for patients. We don't have any problems with not enough providers, generally speaking, generally speaking. And because of that, we can afford to get people in and take care of them in a variety of different ways. And that's one of the biggest pieces of it. We've grown the supply of healthcare providers and we have liberalized or freed up the access to care and scope of authority and practice for those professions. And so physical therapists have had the ability to, you know, order imaging studies and run laboratory tests and see patients without somebody's permission slip, whoops, I mean referral since about 1976. And we have a great track record of safety and quality. And that's just as true of us as it would be of all of you if you had access to that same kind of autonomy and practice. It's certainly what you went to school for. It's what the D and DPT is for, right? And I think a big, a big lesson we can learn from military medicine is that healthcare doesn't suffer and access gets better when we give healthcare providers clinical privileges and access that line up with their education and training. And it is not a fight about who can lobby the legislature more to assure their salaries. Mm. I think that's probably the biggest, probably the biggest lesson. So improve, increase in access and- Grow the supply, grow the supply of healthcare practitioners. A big reason why something's expensive, Mm -hmm. supply and demand, right? Supply and demand. That's a big part of the reason something's expensive. So by growing the supply, right, you can reduce the cost. And that's a big way that we could reduce the cost of delivering healthcare in our country is by liberalizing those scope of practice and licensure laws. If those laws are effective at protecting patients from a safety perspective, I don't think I've ever seen evidence of that. 
I mean, someone can correct me and, you know, post this, you know, study if they want to, but I, I haven't really seen any evidence. Like, like, so where I work, occupational therapists, they go to this, they go to this course to manage upper extremity problems. And they see patients without a referral and take care of anybody who's got a uh, upper limb problem, even sports injuries. Right. And they're great at it. They're great at it. Right. But that's the sort of thing that's really hard to, to, to get traction on. I mean, I think you think about most of the people who've got the kinds of problems we can help them with. Let's just think orthopedic musculoskeletal, right? Maybe only 20 to 30% of them can get access to physical therapy care. Or like maybe, maybe the physical therapy part's closer to 15%. Let's widen it and say, okay, let's include people who do related things to us occupational therapy, chiropractic, athletic training. Let's put them, let's put us all in the same bucket. We're still only talking about 20, 25% of people. Everybody else gets pills, potions, and procedures. So are we competing with these people? Are we, am I competing with an athletic trainer or a chiropractor? No, I'm not. I'm not competing with them. I'm going after that 70% that doesn't even have a shot at low-cost, low-risk, non-invasive care that works. That's what I'm interested in. And we have, a much, we have a much bigger supply of folks to see those patients in the, in the socialized military system than we do on the outside. And why? Because it's more free market. That's why. Our socialized system is more free market. And that's a big reason. See, everybody's happy. Well, there's nobody's <laughs> pockets need to be uh, filled. Yeah, I think to some degree, that's a big part of the problem, right? A big part of the problem is that people, a lot of folks are profiting on the way things are right now. And like, we, we can be bad about that, right? Uh, but that's just kind of the reality of human nature. What we yeah. need to do is we need to, we need to turn the culture on that, right? We need to turn the culture on that. And, and changing culture involves what we do and say every single day. Like events like this. That's part of how we kind of move that cultural cultural needle. So a, as we wrap up, I, I was going through some of your tweets today, and there was one of your tweets that really uh, kind of resonated with me. And it was where you mentioned that being nice was a behavior, uh, not a trait a, a, yes. in relation to leadership. Um, in relationship to life. Well, that as well, but yeah. can you, yeah. can you expand on that a little bit? Because yeah. I, I thought it was a, a perfect uh, thought as to leaders and how they're viewed and, and things like that, because, you know, it kind of hit personally because I've, you know, there's been times when people are like, Alex, you're not, you're not nice. I'm like, no, no, that's not my job in this situation. My job is not to be nice. I'm here to do what needs to happen in in a, in a fashion that needs to happen. You know, yep. nice is is like you said, nice is a behavior, um, and it's only nice if I get nice. You know that type of thing. Yeah, that's but, right. But, but go ahead, <laughs> go ahead and expand on that because yeah, I thought. Yeah, would... no. First of all, thank you so much. I appreciate that feedback. Thank you. I'm glad it helped. And so, what I said was, nice is a behavior. It is not a personality characteristic. Nice is a behavior. It is not a personality character. I'm not nice. Nice is not a quality of something that I have. Nice is a behavior. And like Gollum said from Lord of the Rings, 
we'll be nice to them if they'll be nice to us. And so oftentimes in life, nice behavior is the right behavioral choice. I tell people, I tried to do this myself, and I tell everyone that, that works with me, I want you to be 20% kinder to people than you think you need to be every time. I'm asking you to be 20% kinder than you think you need to be in every interaction you have with someone else. But nice is a behavior. It's not a personality characteristic. Oftentimes, nice behavior is the right choice, but not always. Not always. And some of the biggest mistakes people make, especially if they're in service businesses or if they take inside their mind that they have to be a nice person, is that the situation calls for them to be something other than nice. And that doesn't mean you're a jerk. It could just mean that you're firm and assertive or that you hold a boundary with someone else. And that's the behavior that's called for. And so being nice in that situation makes things worse and is the wrong move. That's why I talk about nice as a behavior. It's not a personality characteristic. I think you're spot on. I think you're spot on with that. Well, Jason, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for taking the for time out of your, your busy day and spending time with us and, and sharing with our, our, our viewers and, and our followers uh, you know, just a lot of lot of wealth of knowledge. Obviously, you've. I, I learned a you, lot. I learned a lot. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and honestly, I, I don't think you're going to have probably as much trouble once you uh, join the we'll side of things, because I, I think <laughs> what you're doing and, and the thoughts that you have on leadership and things of that nature, I think is something that more people need to be uh, aware of and, and need to hear. Uh, because it, it's thoughts like that that I think those younger up-and-coming members of our profession are going to help take our profession uh, to where we all want it to go. Um, but it's going to start with those those small little nuggets that you've been dropping uh, to get those people to to, to make the, the decisions, like you said, at their level and then gradually um, make their way up. So again, thank you so much. Really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for having me. I had a great time. I'll come back anytime. All right. Thank you. So do we. You bet. All right. So follow.